0: All right, so we're going to be today in Mark chapter 1. So if you brought a Bible, we'll actually be looking uh, at a scripture passage this morning. So, um, man, welcome to uh, our third uh, Sunday school of the winter quarter. Uh, we are discussing uh, this large topic of what it means for us to be the church in the world. Uh, what does it mean to translate the things that we talk about here Uh, On a Sunday morning into that place out there where you live and you work, uh, where there are people, quite frankly, who are out there who aren't into the kind of stuff that we're in. What does it mean? How do we do that? It's not always very obvious, I hope you've seen, uh, and we'll learn that a little bit more as we move into the future. Um, So last week, I tried to introduce you to this idea that um, when when God calls uh, an individual, a person, and converts them, transforms their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. They become a Christian. He never does that in isolation. Rather, what he does is he calls you out into a body of people. That is, you have a corporate identity, if I can use that phrase, um, more than you have an individual identity. And the Bible uses that word word called called the church. church. Uh, Literally, that word is the word ekklesia in the Greek word. If you translate that literally, it means those who have been called out the called out ones, the ones who have been called, invited to come out from their particular world uh, and to go out and change the world. Well, now today, I want to deal with a different way in which God talks about what it means for us to be together as his people, but with an ever so slightly different nuance that you might not really fully understand until next week. So this will be my commercial to beg you to come back. I know it's Christmas Eve next week, uh, but it'll be a real hoot as we talk about uh, church and Kingdom. Next week we do not have Sunday school, so don't come back next week. We really don't have Sunday school next week. Wow. So come New Year's Eve. <laughs> if y'all could come to my house on Christmas Eve, that would be great, because i prepared all this material this week. I really did, but that's okay. That's good. That, that saves me some time later on in the semester. So, All right, let's read Mark chapter one before I get too far into this. Um, So Mark chapter 1, now after John was arrested, that was the cue, I think. I don't know why, but after John was arrested, that was Jesus' cue. He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat <laughs> with the hired servants and followed him. So you get this cue for Jesus that for whatever reason, John's being put in prison. Listen, no, no, it's time. It's time. It's big time time. And what you have is you have a very peculiar word that Mark chooses to describe time. You actually have two words for time that are used in the uh, sort of original Greek. Not to blind you with science, but these are helpful things to know. When it says the time has come, there are two choices that Mark had. He could have used the word chronos. Chronos is where we get the word chronological. That is passing time, the time that you have on your watch right? What time is it? That's chronos time. There's another word, though, called kairos time. Kairos time is important time. It's like, what is the state of the world in these times? It's talking about significant time, important time, weighty time, that literally is pregnant with significance. It's got important things attached to it. And so what Jesus is saying is, now that I'm beginning my ministry, this is huge. The decisive event in what God has been doing from the creation of the world, and especially the fall, has finally started in the most vivid way it started. And what he says is, you can know what that is, is because the kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. Now look, you may not realize it, you may not have a grasp over this, but we are talking about why we as Christians think we're even here. Um, we're talking about why we get up in the morning to do the jobs that we do. We're talking about the, the, the significance of, of our t- labor and our toil. We're talking about being late in life and looking back on my life and saying, how did I do? What did I do? What did I, what did I accomplish? And Jesus is saying that any other answer to that question that's not somehow leading its way back to, back the, idea to the idea of the, of the kingdom, kingdom has missed what my mission was about. Okay? You got to understand that everybody had a view of history. When Jesus showed up, everybody had a view of history. For Greeks, it was this sort of circular, endless repetition, and therefore ultimately meaningless. It was repetition. So get whatever you can get your hands on. For the Roman societies, it was far more of a um, uh, this idea that the gods were up in heaven, and they were in this eternal conflict, And they had their mirrors in the world. And so therefore, conquering and conflict is going to be part of what we do. But we're just hoping that our side wins, that there's good that takes over or whatever. But Jesus comes to announce the fact that, look, I'm giving you a new view of history. Which means I'm giving you a new view of your history. Of what the meaning of your life is, according to Jesus. Which would be a very interesting quiz to take. I'm probably going to ask you that at the end of our discussion today. Like, What's the reason? What's the big idea? What is it that centers us as Christians? What's the most important thing that we as Christians can have that sort of back of everything that we try, strive for? Why am I trying to graduate from high school? You know, uh, youth groups? <laughs> Why am I trying to do that? Is it just to get a job? Uh, is it just to make a living in the future? What's the reason here? Why do I want to change jobs? Why do I wish... That I lived in a different town. Why? Jesus comes and gives us the answer to that by talking about the kingdom of God. This is a huge concept of the way God talks about the purpose that his people are doing in the world. And I would make an argument, I'm going to make an argument today, that it literally starts at the beginning of the Bible and goes to the very end. But that's point two. First, what I want to do, though, is talk about the nature of the kingdom. And sometimes I make it where these points are like a mystery and they just appear on the screen. Today, apparently, they're all coming at one time. Um, I failed to put in my animation there, but that's okay. So look, verse 17, what does Jesus say? He tells Simon and Andrew that what he's going to do is he's going to be going to make them fishers of men. Now, there's a lot of imagery we can draw off of the idea of man fishing. Uh, One of the more interesting commentaries that I read in preparation for this explained that the idea of fishing uh, wasn't always... um, the soul-winning activity that we oftentimes think that it is. Uh, I grew up in a religious context that always talked about the importance of, of you know, man-fishing, you know. Uh, we're looking for God to bring people into his kingdom. And so evangelism was really the only idea wrapped up in the idea of fishing for men. But one commentator made a point that if you look at the idea of fishing in the Old Testament, because the best way to understand a piece of Scripture is to do what? Compare it with other places in the Bible, Right? If you go in the Old Testament, oftentimes uh, the Old Testament prophets would talk about fishing uh, in judgment terms. God looks in, that, I think it's like Amos. He says, I'm going to place a hook up in your mouth, and I am going to drag you into my will. Uh, talking about judgment and things like that. So that may be back of this, but at least we can say this. Fishing as an activity does what? It brings something from one realm one reality into another reality. Does it not? The fish is in the sea. It's, for me, as a consumer of fish, it's useless in the sea. So what I need to do is bring it from that realm into my realm, particularly, right? And so what you get then is this imagery in the Bible where when God calls his people, he's doing the same thing. He's taking you out of a realm, a world, an idea, a concept, a a, a defining uh, mission in life, and he's picking you up and bringing you to into a different one. This is why you get verses like Colossians chapter one verse thirteen. Listen to this: He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the King of His beloved Son. Ha ha! That makes sense. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you self-identify as a Christian, then you are one who believes you have been taken from a realm of darkness, and brought into this thing called the kingdom of God. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, and it's absolutely fundamental. This is the the point. Jesus came along to do so much more than just forgive you of your sins. As a matter of fact, if that's really all you got at your fingertips when it comes to what Jesus did for you in your life, there's probably a long list of insecurities as a Christian that we ought to talk about. Because if it's all summed up in just forgiveness, it creates a lot of confusion in terms of taking what Jesus wants for his people and translating into the actual world that I live when I go to work, when I deal with my children, <clears throat> when I deal with bosses, when I serve on the city council, when I do all these activities. If that's all you got is Jesus died from, on the cross for my sins, it's not enough. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. And you're saying, well, What's the broader concept? The kingdom of God. Now, look, I want to try to just for a second let you know what we mean by a kingdom. Um, A kingdom is really nothing more than the structures and the values that shape your understanding of yourself and the world around you. And you really don't understand what a kingdom is until you realize you're living in a kingdom. You can talk about it on a micro level or you can talk about it on a macro level. You've got, you got big picture kingdoms and you got small picture kingdoms. Wherever there are structures, values that are kind of shaping the world around you, um, that's a kingdom. That's what God is talking about. Uh, when I was a campus minister, um, I, I used to love to sort of pick on college students and ask, what sort of kingdom is Old Miss? What kind of realm is here? What structures and values are shaping your understanding of yourself and those around you? (laughs) And I I found some old notes where I got a little little edgy one particular evening. And I was like, to me, on the outside coming in, it seems like this is a culture who values beauty. Beauty is in, ugly is out, (laughs) privilege is in, awkward is out. There's, there's a sense in which there's structures. And when you arrive on the campus of Old Miss, you find that some of those structures have even been um, incarnated, as it were, in actual buildings. And it's so funny to watch some of the sorority and fraternity crowd just harumph. <laughs> 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 no, it's not true. <laughs> and, of course, my idea was like, okay, so can I come walk into y'all's meeting no, no, No. That's, a, that's structure. a structure. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that you have an incarnated, like, door that you literally can either get into the Holy of Holies or you cannot. So I know it's weird for you to talk about, what's that tabernacle about in the Bible? And who are, you know, all that stuff is just weird. I don't know. We've got structures all around us that have a sense of entrance. Small little, like, commercial at the bottom. We're about to spend probably the next year and a half, two years talking about a structure that we're actually going to build. So what does that structure say about our responsibility to people walking through the door? Now, some of you may be, be like, oh, what does this structure say? Set that aside. We're going to a new structure. <laughs> a new structure. But if, we, if we're going to say um, we value a sense of openness so that we want anyone to feel like they can come in and be a part of this fellowship, something about the structures we build are going to have to say that. So the structures and the values help define the kind of realm we live in. Does that make sense? So the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is this brand new sociological force for the lives of his creatures. There was something that was defining you. There were values and structures that you lived in. I call it darkness, Jesus says. It was darkness. You know what that was like? But I have transferred you. I've picked you up and put you in a whole new realm with brand new values, brand new ways of looking at the world around you. So the question Jesus is going to ask really for the rest of his ministry until he gets to the cross is what does it look like to sit under Jesus' lordship, under his kingship? There must be structure and values that reflect that a Christian lives in a totally different realm. We don't deal with money the way the world deals with money. We don't deal with our sex the same way the world deals with their sex. We don't deal with our toys the same way the world does. We don't deal with our relationship, the way in which we used to, our relationships we used to. Racial attitudes, political attitudes, to live in the kingdom means living in an alternate realm. So a lot of times the Bible will describe us as like sojourners. We're kind of passing through because people don't understand this. They're kind of like, I know you're here, you're among us and you're involved with us, but you're also not. And you're like, yeah, that's right, because my citizenry, my fundamental sort of self-definition, is not as an American. This is where I definitely have been. Not, not putting my hand over my heart. This is about me being a citizen of the kingdom. Now, as it turns out, I would make an argument that Christianity uniquely allows you to be a really good citizen. Romans chapter 13, we're going to talk about all next, uh, next uh, spring. But the point is, at first, in terms of the way I see myself, I'm a citizen of the kingdom. Okay? So the nature of the kingdom. Second point, what is the story of the kingdom? Uh, and and uh, again, I was just looking for a way to outline this. By story of the kingdom, I want you to see that you can actually look at the entire Bible as a story of God's kingdom. And so a number of years ago, I found this great resource where they, were, they, they unpacked this in a really great way. So there are eight ways, eight Eight ways in which we can talk about the kingdom uh, in the Bible. I'm going to zip through these. Um, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is a hand. That's, uh, so I did do animation on some of these. That was effective. So we start with what we're going to call the patterned kingdom, the pattern of the kingdom. In other words, the world, sort of as God designed it to be, was God's people in God's place under God's rule. Um, if, you, if you have a copy of the, children's sto- the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, no, 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 that's not the one. What's the one with the, with the kingdom theme? Oh, no. The, the big picture storybook Bible. That's the one. Go grab that one. You want to change the way you're looking at stuff? Go grab the l- adults. Go grab the children's big picture storybook Bible. Because he says when the Bible talks about the world, it shows that God's in charge of it all. Everything is God's kingdom, ultimately speaking. In other words, there's a sense in which there's a sovereign kingdom, which is everything that happens. Even the bad stuff that happens, which is very mysterious, very mysterious. How can God be in charge over the bad things that happen? I don't know, but we need to know that he is. So the patterned kingdom. The second thing we get is then the perished kingdom. The kingdom crumbles in Genesis chapter 3, does it not? Adam and Eve decide that they don't want to live under God's rules. So what do they do? They break his covenant. They break contract with him. There was this contract to sort of live as his people, as his creatures, to glorify him. They're like, no, I don't think so. But when all of a sudden, the contract between God and the, and the crown of his creation is broken, you know what happens? Everything gets sort of messed up. Everything does. In other words, what you find is that all the creation gets frustrated, which is interesting, interesting. to me. Paul will Paul tell you, tell you today, Romans in chapter Romans 8, chapter 8 the that the entire created Paul. order has been subject to frustration, futility. It feels pointless and that the whole of the creation is sort of crying out for the redemption of the sons of men to be revealed, <laughs> which is kind of cool. For those of you that love the walk through the woods or on the beach or you know, through the mountains, that's all the frustrated nature. <laughs> What's it going to look like when finally they can spread its wings? Yay. Then we get the promised kingdom. This is all of a sudden where you get this ray of light. Boom, God looks out, and he goes and finds a guy named Abraham. And you know what? It's not because Abraham was cool. We get no evidence that Abraham was better or that he was holier or that he was uh, more influential or that he was like some magnanimous leader. He just calls him and he makes these unconditional promises to him. (laughs) Actually, not only that, not just unconditional problems. He actually made some contra conditional promises saying, you know what, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I'm going to do it no matter what. And by blessing you, I'm going to guarantee those blessings by putting my own life on the line, not even yours. So that I can not only account for the the rules between our relationship, but I'll also account for your failures to follow up to it. And then goes the kingdom. It's a promised kingdom that God is going to say, I'm going to use Abraham's family as a launching pad. Ooh, I love, love, love that, that image as a launching pad to thrust ourselves into the world so we can fix it. Or if you want to use a certain theologian's phrase, God called Abraham so he began to set the world to rights, to fix the world. That's the reason why this came came in. So then what you get throughout the rest of the the Old Testament is a partial kingdom. Because the, the history of Israel begins with their release from Egypt, right? Curing their sense of alienation. And being able to meet with God at Sinai. And what does God give him at Sinai? He gives him his law. He gives him his law. In other words, I need you to know that this is the pattern. These are the values of this new kingdom that I'm bringing you into. And then he comes along and gives him this tabernacle or a temple, which was where he would meet with him. And history tends to promise when God's king is in place, like King David. But of course, it it, it struggles when it doesn't. And sin persists. The kingdom is not eternal yet. But it should be. People know it. They feel it. They want it to be permanent. It's promised to King David that it would be permanent. It's not. it's not. The whole, the whole story, story of the Old Testament will frustrate you to death. If any of you have ever been like, like, like super Christians and read through the whole Old Testament, and you actually got through Leviticus, that's your first like you know, wall that you hit, Leviticus. And then you kind of get into the prophets, and you're like, I think I'm depressed, and I'm taking Zoloft, you know, from my depression, because the prophets... Um, you'll know that it's a frustrating book. It's just failure after failure after failure. you just left hanging at the end of it. But what they all say is, is there's something that's coming. There's a prophesied kingdom. God announces his intention to say, look, this, is all, this has all been great, but eventually I'm going to both purge the sins of my people and I'm going to bring them back into fellowship with me. He promises that he's going to do both. <laughs> That is the controlling question is, how can he do that? It's very schizophrenic when you read through the Old Testament prophets. I've made at least a couple of attempts to do it. Because on the one hand, you're going, oh, my word, that's the sweetest thing. Listen to God loving his people. And not a chapter later, you're going to be like, he's going to kill us all. And I probably me too. It's schizophrenic. You feel that. And what that is are the prophets being like, how is he going to fix this? Like, I know we can't enter his holy presence without being purged of our sin, but yet we can't live without him? How do we get How can anyone draw near and still survive it? It's the question that hangs over the prophesied kingdom. And then boom, along comes a son of a carpenter, a blue-collar dude from Redneck Town, Israel, who looks and says, "Hey, by the way, I know you' all been trying to figure out. But all those loose pieces that started, for Pete's sake, in the Garden of Eden, I know y'all are all wonder where that was going. Guess what? It was aiming towards me. But look, you probably would have had a little trouble believing that. You, you, people are like, how could they have rejected Jesus? I don't know. I probably would have. I don't believe you. You're Joseph and Mary's son. <clears throat> Jesus comes and says, I am God's forever king. I'm the one that David pointed to. I'm here to save people from their sins by paying their moral debt. And I'm going to establish your righteousness. And I'm going to walk you into my reign. So now you finally have God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now let me give you my biggest example of this. What about Jesus' miracles? Why did Jesus do miracles? I think when I was a kid, I thought Jesus' miracles were to let people know that he really was was who said he was. And I don't think 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 that's untrue. But But if you think about that too much, it gets a little weird. Because you kind of want to be like, Jesus is like, hey, 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 disciples, (laughs) watch this. (laughs) You know, and and does something like that. You know, why did Jesus do the miracles he did where they just kind of like, this will be awesome? Because if you think about it, I could have done some more awesome tricks. Like if I got Jesus's powers, water into wine, that's cool. I get it. And it's good wine. You know, (laughs) he makes for a great party. But why not just, like, fly around Palestine, you know? you know? People of the earth, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I am here. Or just fly to Rome, for Pete's sake, and confront the emperor and zap him, turn him to dust or something. Set yourself up on the throne that way. Like, I could have thought of better miracles if that's the only reason. If the miracles are just there to impress, then that, just, that it, it doesn't work. What if, though, the miracles were Jesus saying, this is what I want you to know my kingdom is about. First of all, I'm gonna turn some water into wine, because you know what my kingdom is about? It's about a party. (laughs) I need y'all to celebrate together. Um, and then that's totally foreign to a lot of you being like, well, no, no. As a Christian, we are sober-minded and together and controlled. We don't party. Well, that's not Jesus' view. No reading of the New Testament lets you get to that in his mind. Even the religious people are looking at me like, I think he hangs out with the drunk people, the wine bibbers, you know, the sinners. In other words, he comes along and, and, and changes their view of it. Then what does he do? He comes along he starts feeding people. He makes sure that their stomachs are filled along with their hearts. It's both. It ain't just a ministry in word. It's a ministry in deed too. And then he comes along and he takes dead people and raises them from dead to life. Why? Because he wants to let, you, let us know that I'm going to be doing that for the rest of time. I'm going to take dead hearts and bring them to life. What Jesus' miracles are doing is giving you a taste of what his kingdom will be like. Because he's fixing the world. He's casting out demons. He's helping people with mental health problems. He's helping poverty where there's no food. Uh, He's giving people sort of an insight into places where they can fix the world. I hope you see where I'm going with this. If Jesus' miracles are a model of the kingdom, then now we have a very different... Now we understand why we kind of missed the point of them. Because if they were just magic tricks, we're kind of like, that was awesome. But don't you feel a little bad because you're like, I, I, I didn't get to see that. I wish I could have seen that. I would have believed. If I could have seen just walk on water. Yeah. Then we get the proclaimed kingdom. You know, The rest the of the New testament, testament, testament comes where, comes where uh, Jesus, Jesus inaugurates, inaugurates this kingdom, but it's not yet been consummated. For whatever reason, he wants this to go for a period of time. The principle is there, but we're waiting for it to come to fulfillment. Why? So that God can fill up heaven with a number that no one can number so that they can begin the process of ultimate human healing human suffering. That's the pattern. You have the inauguration of the kingdom at Jesus' coming. You have the continuation of the kingdom, which is where we are now, where we are today, that ultimately lead to the consummation of Jesus' kingdom. Get that? Inauguration, continuation, consummation. What is human history about? You got it. Right there, okay? Until finally we go, yeah, that's uh, Jesus arguing, not consummated, <clears throat> the perfected kingdom. And what happens? All heaven and earth will be recreated or made new. You gotta love that. There's a great sermon in Revelation 21 where God looks and says, Behold, I am making all things new. I had a buddy in seminary who wrote a, a chapter, uh, wrote a paper on the attributes of God. And one of the attributes he identified was the newnessness of God. He's a God who makes all things new. And for older people, that means a lot. (laughs) For me, that means a lot. Revelation 22 says that the leaves of the tree of of life that sits in the middle of heaven are for the what? The healing of the nations. You want to know why those things are there? Because that's what God's people have been up to that whole time. That is why we're here. That's the ultimate reason. All right, so let's apply this and finish up with some question time. Oh, good. We're making good time. (laughs) So these actually do just appear. You never know exactly how I'm going to do these slides. First of all, what does this mean for us? Well, number one, kingdom living is inevitable. Look, I need to, if nothing else you get this morning, I just want you to hear that there is something that is presently socializing you. And by socializing, I mean like, hey, how are you? So where do you work? Socializing means like the forces that are pressing in on you to form you and shape you. You have a value system, no matter how introverted or uh, apart from the, the, the hoi polloi that you feel. Something is shaping you. You're following some rules of some king and walking in the structures of some understanding of the way things work, right? What does that say to us? My favorite illustration of this was a, was a movie back in the 90s. It was actually a remake of an older movie uh, um, called Sabrina. Have you ever watched this? Like, gentlemen, you probably won't like it. I like it, but it's a, it reveals my feminine side, uh, let's just say. And Sabrina. But there's this great moment where Sabrina sort of goes away. very insecure, and she after after one of these super wealthy brothers. She goes away to Paris to live for a while, and she comes back totally transformed, totally confident she's found herself. And uh, what happens is, is as she begins to live her life, she kind of confronts people without even trying. And she ends up sort of, in a weird way, falling in love not with the younger brother she used to love, but the older brother um, who was addicted to his job. And when they go out on their first couple of dates through the circumstances of the movie... um, Uh, she begins to sort of not so subtly confront him in his job. And at one point in the movie, he kind of gets a little defensive for her kind of challenging him. He's like, look, I do real work in the real world. And my little brother, he watches from the North Shore. That's all he does. He's He's pointing at his little brother. The circumstances of my life are what has made my life miserable. And Sabrina, with all her newfound wisdom, looks and goes, I know you do real work. You probably haven't made a wrong move since you were four. He said, but you know what Linus, that's work. Where do you live? I love that. That's work. Where do you live? What is she saying? Linus, what is the realm in which you operate? (laughs) Where is your home? Look, that's just work. Um, Those are just your kids. That's just your marriage. Where do you live? What realm are you in? So kingdom living is inevitable. Secondly, Kingdom advancement is a fundamental Christian duty. I think I might have said even the fundamental Christian duty. The goal of the Christian life is not to go to heaven when we die. Though that's certainly right. The goal of the Christian life is to fix this world. Why? Because we're anticipating what he will do when he finally arrives. Because the predictions about heaven, don't let this blow your mind, you remember a couple of years ago when we did some work in, in, in a Revelation? You might can appreciate this. The kingdom of heaven is never pictured as a place where we go to when we die. The kingdom of heaven is always pictured as something that is coming down to this earth, to this place, to transform this thing. And I know that my students didn't believe that because they would always ask me, Les, do you think we'll know each other in heaven? What's the assumption? Because clearly in heaven, we're just these disembodied sort of spirit amoebas sort of wafting through, you know, existence, right? Will I be able to know that someone's there as I'm sort of, you know, disembodied? Okay, that, that is a disparaging of the physical world. But guess what? God made the spirit the physical world. It's missing. good. Even Satan said said was, was good. So what he's going to do when he makes all things new doesn't mean that he's going to rob it of its materiality. As a matter of fact, he's going to take the materiality and make it even better, more solid, if C.S. Lewis is to be believed. So for that reason, kingdom advancement is at the heart of all Christian living. This is what we look, this is my whole purpose, is I am an agent of the king. And the king is on this big project. It's project management. Ah, this just occurred to me. (laughs) A leadership thing would have to make it in there. Come on. Come on, project managers. You know, you you don't know... You don't start a project until you know what your goal is, right? And then you get everybody aligned, right? You over-communicate your values. See, I can talk all your business language. Uh, You get involved in that. Why? Because you know where we're going. Christian looks and goes, I know where God is going. He's going to fix this place. Thirdly, therefore, we have to submit to the king's rule. Um, There's such a large part of our understanding of the Christian life that is wrapped up in the concept of how what I am doing today is making a difference in advancing God's kingdom. This is such a different set of questions. Um, How do, as some of you have forgotten what it was like to be in college, but I'll start here. Since we're a university community, when we talk to college students, realize that there's all kinds of forces that are speaking for them to make decisions on the basis of their values. How do you choose a spouse? Again, that's 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 a loaded question. Uh, Because a lot of people be like, well, you don't choose a spouse. They choose you. The the universe chooses you. (laughs) The planets align, and you just know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Help to disavow them of that notion, if you could, uh, so happily. Um, But really, how am I choosing a career? What what, what, what do I think about when I'm a senior? I'm going, which city am I going to move into? What am I considering when uh, my spouse and I are trying to sort of sit down and have those plans for the future? should you sit down and have those conversations about your plans for the future with your family? Might ought to do that. What are the rules? What's the grid through which I'm looking to understand these things? Hey, guess what? You realize that churches have to do this too. Churches have to look and be like, so what is the grid through which we're looking at Oxford and Lafayette County? How are are we understanding this? If If it's in any other rubric under than the values of the kingdom of God, then I think we're missing it at least if Jesus is to be believed. The kingdom advances by the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Look, this means a whole lot of things, not the least of which is, because, because the kingdom, the kingdom advances, advances, advances by the Holy, by the Spirit, Holy Spirit, Spirit and wisdom, we've got to know that wisdom may sometimes, often, be in short supply, even among God's people. What that means, I can't stress this enough, means that there might be conflict. That is, Two individuals, both of them redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and going to the same heaven together, can disagree on the path with which they might take to get to the same ends. Does that make sense? And of all the things that I find is sort of losing culturally in America, if I can play sort of futurist for a moment, we're losing that. A sense of saying, look, <clears throat> I may not see this problem the way in which you see it, but you know what? I'm going to own enough of my own humility to sit down and have a conversation with you so we can think together about why you're doing things the way way you are. And you know what? Even if at the end of that conversation, we walk away still differing on that, I'm still going to look at you and be like, that's okay. That's all right, because it's okay for us to disagree on those things. Now look, some of you being like, yeah, but some of those are kind of complicated. Like, I'm not going to flex on A, B, and C, right? And frankly, I don't know. But In our world, we're leaning away from even having the conversation to begin with. So let's deal with problem one before we get to problem four, five, and six. The bottom line is this is about living in dependence on the Spirit, which, by the way, was the one thing that Jesus said he would always give you if you asked. Um, You know, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will my heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? That ought to be on the list. Like every prayer, (laughs) grant us your Spirit, Lord. Lord. Uh, help us to see more clearly. And then finally, you knew I couldn't live without, leave without something. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. Doggone it. It's going to be my big punch at the end. Um, <laughs> look, um, I remember getting a comment from a student, and it was not a conversation that, that, that I had directly with the student, but he was relating a student that he had had with a Muslim uh, uh, student, an old miss. And the Muslim student was. Um, hearing Christians talk about kingdom language and King Jesus and that Jesus is Lord over all. And the Muslim said, interestingly, um, that sounds imperialistic. And if you think about it, he wasn't necessarily saying imperialistic was a bad thing because from a Muslim worldview, there's there's a little bit of that in their worldview as well, Um, maybe more. And the question became, what makes your Jesus different from Allah? Uh, what makes uh, nature nature you any others? other sort of despotic earthly king that would seek to advance his will through force? What makes you guys any different? And of course, Revelation 5 kind of helps us understand that. Revelation 5, John looks to see the lion of the tribe of Judah. You remember this? You know, in, in, Romans, in, in Revelation 4, you have this great scene of the throne room of God. And uh, you know, it's just, it's just praise and praise and praise. And all of a sudden, in, in, um, in, in chapter 5, you suddenly, John hears, you know, one of the angels be like, hey, look at this. Go look and see the lion of the tribe of Judah. And a lion, of course, was obviously a symbol of strength and authority and kingship. The tribe of Judah, you know, go look at the king. And so John spins around to go look into the throne and look at the right hand of the throne, what he's looking at, and you know what he sees? He doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb but it's a lamb with his throat slit. And again, you're reading through Revelation and you're being like, that's why I don't read the book of Revelation because that <laughs> freaks me out. <clears throat> but what's he saying? He's saying the reason why this king is different from every other king is because he's the king who instead of turning the gun on his people, which is exactly what a totalitarian regime is, when all of a sudden the government looks and goes, we've got to enforce this particular rule and we're only going to do it at the end of a bayonet. That is tyranny. That's the definition of it. And everyone understands this. But Jesus is saying, rather than turn the gun on you, I'm going to turn the gun on myself. And I'm going to absorb all of the pain and all of the cruelty and all of the wars and all of the oppression that you guys have been doing to each other since time immemorial. And I'm going to turn it on myself. So that therefore, uh, C.S., uh, um, J.R. Tolkien, when he was writing in The Lord of the Rings, and he talks about... Um, oh my word, um, the king, I just lost, thank you, um, Aragorn. He talks about Aragorn sort of taking his place in the, in the house of the kings, uh, uh, over the house of men in Minas Tirith. And they look and they say, ah, it's fulfilling the prophecy. At one point, uh, Aragorn is there in the houses of healing and he knows, he knows the old potions. He knows how to fix the wounds of the soldiers that are around. And the, and the lady who runs the house of healing looks and goes, ah, it's fulfilling the prophecy that the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. That's the difference, is this king is the one who comes with healing in his hands. Lead on, O king eternal, we sing, till sin's fierce war shall cease, and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but but what what. deeds of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes. That's the difference in this kingdom. Man, that was a good finish right there. i got to be honest with you. Finish as finishes go, that was a good finish. That felt good. All right, I left, uh, ooh, I left lots of time for questions, about 10 minutes for questions. Again, I'm interested in hearing kind of what you grew up with or maybe what you came to understand about the organizing principles of being a Christian. Like, What's the most important thing? What do you think? Or how you understood this kingdom language, if you did at all, cared to think about it at all. What is, that? what is an E.T. Christian? Be good. be good. I like that, E.T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? It, it, you, you realize sort of, um, and I'm assuming that was an individual question, like you be good. And of course, that's always determined by the, the sins that I'm able to sort of avoid. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, I, I find it very interesting that one of the things that feeds a sin, especially a besetting sin, is uh, a preoccupation with it. Because you end up get you end up giving it more credit than it's probably due, um, and so you feed it with all this attention and all this obsession. And by the way, the, the, the church just helps you with that because we keep focusing you back in on yourself and yourself. And it's very interesting. I find that a lot of the a lot of the struggles in my household tend to kind of dissolve into the ether when we all have a common goal, an object. <laughs> and it may be that some of the sort of Things that we're wrestling with that right now are representing like big, dark clouds of our conscience might actually find some resolution if we just sort of been like, yeah, I don't really know what to do with that. But we got this thing over here that we're doing that's really important. Yeah. What else? What other kinds of impressions of the kingdom? Or even just thoughts about this. Yes, Susan. hmm So the whole idea, oh, this is bad. Yeah, why polish the brass on the Titanic? you know. Uh, <laughs> right, that's the idea. The ship is going down. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I would take your first option. So, you get a lot of language in Revelation, especially, that fire and judgment are going to come down and consume everything. And, you know, you tend to think of, like, this tumultuous, you know, earth shattering of uh, 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 convulsing. convulsing. Um, yeah, I think those are purifying fires. I think there's heavy imagery that Revelation is borrowing, to, to, to show the severity of God's judgment to those people who have uh, uh, continued to be unrepentant about their oppression. That gets pictured in the nation of Babylon. So not to do a lesson on Revelation. 18 through 22, I would argue, are a tale of two cities. Okay? All of human worldliness is pictured in this imagery of Babylon, the evil city. And God says, I'm going to bring destruction to that city. It's going to be burned, it's going to be fires, it's going to be completely wiped out. But then in chapter 21, you find out the a new city. The new city is the city that's coming down out of heaven. And you know what that city is? It's the bride. Um, Scotty Smith, um, uh, up in Nashville, uh, used to be the pastor of uh, Christ's Community up there. Um, you used to go to Christ's Community. This is your old pastor. Scotty has this great thing that he said, when I was growing up, I always thought that I was going to be walking streets of gold through pearly gates. But now I find out that that imagery is not about a literal physical city, but it's about me, the bride. Again, whenever I do a sermon on this, I always (laughs) have this thing where I'm like, guys, I understand that that's not the the biggest compliment you probably ever gave somebody. Like, my darling, (laughs) you're so lovely, you look like a city. Um, um, But that's the imagery that John uses. Like, the the, the passage in chapter 21 is, behold, you know, come, let me show you the bride. And he took me, and I saw the city coming down out of heaven, which is important that the kingdom is coming down here to remake it. A lot of this hinges on whether or not you have a pessimistic view of the future or whether you have an optimistic view of the future. Um, I do not feel, just to give you my, I'll tip my hand here, I don't feel that you can really reconcile a lot of the promises about the victory of King Jesus over the world and still have a pessimistic view of the future. I'm an optimist. If some of you are into this kind of thing, I don't encourage it. But if you're into this kind of thing, I'm a post-millennialist. However, I'm a pessimistic post-millennialist. In that, I think that the majority is able to be tyrannized by a minority. So as the gospel goes out and covers the world, as the waters cover the earth, that does not mean that we get out of our suffering uh, because the hands of tyranny often are centralized in the wealthy and centralized in the powerful, and they can tyrannize the majority underneath them. That, to me, fits both imagery. I've got to, I've got to, there's promises in the Bible that have to let me say the gospel is not going to fail. The the, 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 um, the gates of heaven will not prevail against it. And yet, you're exactly right. There's imagery there of being like, and even that's not going to ultimately work until King Jesus shows up and sets the world to rights, ultimately. Yes, interesting. Uh, I really like the way you talk about the kingdom. Yeah. Well, it's so vital to this conversation we're having about, hear me, what does it mean to be the church in the world? That's our theme this semester. So last week we talked about what the church is, and that's, that's that fundamental identity of the called-out ones. Now we got to figure out what the world is. What is the world? How do I understand the world? And that's why we got to talk about this idea of the kingdom. Yeah, you know, it's funny to watch people sort of uh, condescend to uh, the British monarchy. That's so weird. Like, you British people, so you have these people that they really don't do anything, uh, you know, but they're just kind of there, and all you want to do is take their picture and know exactly what they do all the time. Like, that's just weird. You we're kind of like, uh, you mean like movie stars? <laughs> yeah, we don't have anything like that. So, I mean, the, the, I, Tim Keller makes this point to say that there actually is imprinted on the image of God in everyone, this need for a king. Like, like that living in a realm is so inevitable because we're pulled into it by this, um, this, this, this sort of spiritual DNA that remains even though it's fallen. Does that make sense? Like you still have this instinct to need a king. So are you, well, oh, Bob Dylan, okay. What did Bob Dylan teach us? Come on, people you got to serve somebody, right? From the, from the mouths of all kinds of wisdom there. Yeah, good, good, good. So let me give a brief... Oh, go ahead, Eric. This might not be a... Don't ask me for illustrations on the spot, <laughs> Eric, <laughs> as if I've got the ability to pull things up and really teach people. Um, um, well, let, let, let me get, a, let me get it a different way. I'll, I'll, way. Say, I'll this, say this. It. This is a, this <laughs> is a great <laughs> teacher's out. Hold that question for the future. <laughs> Um, but like, because because I, I did, what I want to deal with in two weeks, not next week, because next week is Christmas Eve. Um, but in two weeks, what I want to talk about are the problematic ways in which people have understood church and kingdom. Okay, because what I, what I hope you're asking the question is so like, okay, you talked about the church, now you talk about the kingdom. So, how do those go together again? Exactly. And I'm going to try to illustrate for you three ways in two weeks that we've done that problematically. It's not all been wrong in the history of American Christianity. I'm going to deal with American Christianity. We're going to go back to the 1850s through 1890s and figure out exactly how people started doing church and kingdom in the 20th century. Okay? Which I know you're being like, wow, I'll be sure not to miss that one. Um, But trust me, it's going to be scintillating and mind-blowing. It'll be great. And then in four weeks, three weeks, I'm going to do a thing on what I think are better ways. Because I think there's a lot of people who have done some really good thinking in sort of wrestling with... Let me see if this is what you're talking about. If you pick me up and take me to Time Machine back to 1988, I'm a sophomore in college. I'm as thickly into the sort of southern, fundamentalistic, uh, Bible church, uh, you know, movement as you can be. I'm a youth director in the midst of, of this particular place. Okay? If you'd have asked me about the kingdom it would have come in one of two ways. It would have been like, well, we're waiting on a kingdom when we go to heaven when we die. Or it would have been understood in purely political terms because the moral majority by Jerry Falwell and others was at a fever pitch at that time, right? If we could just get the right politicians in place, the world's going to be so much better. We'll Christianize America, okay? What I want to do is I want to try to identify all the problems with both of those ways of me thinking like that. Okay, And then maybe introduce something a little bit of a better way uh, in the future. So that's not a, a zippy illustration, but that at least gets at it. All right, it's time to go to worship. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are, uh, grateful, for, um, we are grateful for the announcement of the kingdom. Uh, you are our king. And so however it means for us to do this, we would bow our knee to you um, um, in our hearts this morning. Uh, we, will, um, we acknowledge our um, dependency on you. We acknowledge that all good things come from your hand. Uh, we acknowledge that we have been uh, rebels. Uh, we have been seditious. Uh, we have thwarted your kingdom. We have stopped it. But yet yeah, we humble ourselves because we really do believe that you are just that kind of a good king that always accepts your subjects back and loves them and then sacrifices for them and makes. King Jesus, you actually make our own way back to you, you provide the way. Uh, and so we are, we are grateful and we are overwhelmed and overjoyed by it. And so we pray that in this worship service that we have, we reflect all those things. Um, as we remember, remember when you were born the one wonder, wonderment that the king became a baby. Um, <laughs> help us, Father, to love and sing and wonder in the next uh, couple hours uh, because we'd be transformed if you did. Great. In Jesus' name, amen.